is a Lost Newcastle podcast produced on the land of the Awabakal and Waramai people. We acknowledge their long care of this land as traditional custodians. Imagine not knowing much about your family history and deciding to see what you can find out. And then imagine discovering that you're related to some of the region's most well-known names. Not everybody wants to write a book about it, but Dr. Roland Bannister is someone who has done just that. Initially a carpenter, Roland then trained as a high school music teacher at Newcastle's Conservatorium of Music and spent decades researching, writing and teaching. His book, Hunter Valley Ancestors, is out now. I'm Roland Bannister. Uh, I was born in uh, Waratah just before the Second World War and I lived in Waratah until my mid-twenties and I became a music teacher and taught at Gleninus High and then after some overseas experience I went to Charleston University at Wagga Wagga where I taught for 33 years, then came back to Mayfield, two kilometres from where I grew up, and then when I got old, I moved with my wife Marion to a unit in Newcastle City. I know your name mostly, I think, Roland, through your Conservatorium of Newcastle connection. Yes, I studied at the Conservatorium from my uh, sort of late teens until uh, until I was about 25. I studied the uh, B-flat tenor slide trombone, and I studied to become a high school music teacher at Newcastle Con. Why did you want to teach music? That's a very good question because I was a carpenter at the time. I was a carpenter for seven years and um, I was taking trombone lessons at the conservatorium and a friend of mine that some Newcastle people would remember, Tom Naseby, who was with the education department as a music consultant, he said, are you still paying for lessons up there at the con? I said, yes, I pay for trombone lessons and music theory lessons. He said, well, go back and tell them you want to be a high school music teacher and they'll enrol you and you get free music lessons. Well, I went away and thought about it. I thought being a high school music teacher could be a really good thing to do. I quite like being a carpenter, but I don't like carrying large bits of timber and working (laughs) at heights and working in 40 degrees outdoors. So Mm. I thought that sounds very attractive. So I had to spend a year or two matriculating and then I got into the con and trained as a high school music teacher. And when you think about that career now, uh, on the other end of being a high school music teacher, how do you feel about it? Oh, well, for me it was wonderful. I was a high school music teacher in Glen Innes for four years, then in London for two years, and then came back to Australia uh, just as Charles Sturt University, in those days it was Riverina College, just as it was opening. And so I um, got a job there and uh, spent 33 uh, wonderful years in Wagga Wagga at Charles Sturt University. And when I retired, I came back to uh, Newcastle. I was brought up in Waratah, but we bought a house at Mayfield and lived there for 10 or 12 years before we moved into the city. And like so many Novocastrians of your generation, you were born in that beautiful building directly opposite Gregson Park in Samden Street that people always say, Carol, what is that? And it, it was a, a like a private hospital or maternity hospital. It was a private hospital called, I think it's called Essendon. And uh, yes, that's where I was born. Uh, there were a number of those around Newcastle. I know where there were some other ones. but uh, Hillcrest is another that people often right. refer to? Yes. Well, my former wife, Margaret, from Newcastle, she was born in one in Hanbury Street, uh, Mayfield. Uh, yeah. So, 
we do know about those places. Like so many people, Roland, you at some point decided to have a dig around your family history. Why? What was the bug that bit you? As a young person, my parents would often talk about family, both living family and uh, deceased family, and they'd take us to visit places. I wondered why Mum and Dad took me to Patterson so often. Well, a number of times during my uh, childhood. Uh, And it turns out that that's where Mum's family, a lot of them were from Patterson, and they'd tell me about the family. Honestly, I thought it was boring. The best thing about Patterson for me was swimming in the river there. Yeah. But they would tell me about, not in great detail, but they obviously were interested in it, you know? Yeah. And similarly to Singleton, they'd take me there occasionally and we visited uh, some old rallies there. Uh, That was just a social thing for mum and dad, but it did make me think about family. Uh, So as the years passed, I started to get interested. Oh, and my father had, he was one of 10. They all lived around Newcastle and every now and again for weddings, funerals, etc., they'd all gather. I think I grew to like those gatherings, you know, meeting these uncles and aunts and wondering about them. Some were Salvation Army, some drank too much. Dad was in the middle, he was neither. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I think I uh, grew to like those um, family gatherings particularly as two aunts were quite good piano players. So when they'd gather, we'd sing arm in arm over meadow and farm and all those old songs, you know. And I'd stand at the back trying not to enjoy it. But I think I did enjoy it. Obviously. If you've ended up a music teacher, then there was, yeah, Yeah. that love there as well. Our family history is a funny thing, isn't it? Because some people um, decide that they want to explore and find out more when they're quite young. I did. I was only in my 20s. But I think that was because there were very few of them still around. Yes. So I wanted to know who were yes. these these yes. people. Yes. For others, it comes later in life and for some, not at all. But I think the recording of our stories is really important and it's not just for us and our families, although I guess that's the nice kind of vanity side of the project is that you can share this with your kids and their kids yes. and nieces and nephews. But the stories that it also helps to tell broadly like all of Lost Newcastle for all of us and our families at a point in time at a point in history. That's really important. It is really important. And I like reading stories of other people's family as well as my own because all the time, intuitively, we compare our experience with the experience of others, you know. Well, my family wasn't quite like that, but it had certain characteristics were the same. And so we're triangulating with other people's stories. And you decided to turn your research into a book which you've called Hunter Valley Ancestors, and I love this, an incomplete chronicle of the families Burns, Puxty, Hewitt, Longworth, Poyle, Poyle, Pascoe, Kenny and Hancock. Yes. Incomplete? uh, Well, it's incomplete because I'd been working on it for quite a few years. I'd been working on the book seriously for three years, but gathering information over a much longer period. I realised that to complete it would take a lot more years Let's put it this way, I turn 83 soon and uh, the figures tell me I mightn't live long enough to complete it. That's being quite frank. <laughs> so I thought... You had to stop somewhere. But also, I couldn't... Th- uh, I-, I was fi- finding it really hard going yeah. after three years. Yeah. Uh, so I decided, OK, I'll um, call it incomplete and finish here. 
But, uh, but on the other hand, my objective was to record the lives of all of my mother's ancestors in the Hunter Valley. That is, all of my mother's ancestors in Australia, except one couple. And all of those ancestors do have uh, their genealogical details in the book, but they don't all have a long story written about them. Yeah. About half of them have a long story. The others are summarised in a table with their vital statistics. Why did you decide to dive back through your mum's family, Roland? Because I'd already done a lot on my dad's side. His grandmother had left a diary. Uh, her name was Eliza Bannister, and she left a diary from 1897 to 1912. I transcribed the diary over a period of several years. It was 200,000 words. Oh, Lord. And uh, that was a big contribution to understanding Dad's family. Yeah. And from that, I wrote several articles and a small book about aspects of their family. Uh, so I thought, well, I know a lot about Dad. Uh, now, how about Mum? It was kind of a duty... But yeah. a pleasant duty, yes. So this is your mum's story. This is mum's story. There are some really interesting names in here other than the ones that we've mentioned in the title of your book. You also have Tullock in there, Markwell. Yes. Burns, Hewitt. Is there a link there to the Tullock vineyards? Yes, but a very slender one. Um, I think the Tullock uh, person was, well, he, I'm sure he was, uh, was by uh, marriage and he belonged to the wine family. How did you go about, how much did you know before you started and how much has been a surprise to you? I had collected uh, stories that mum told and uh, there were occasional newspaper clippings, photographs, etc. So I, I knew a fair bit, but when I began the project, I became quite systematic and I uh, systematically explored uh, births, deaths and marriages, uh, ships records, all the stuff that are on are searchable on archives, hmm. but particularly Trove. That, that's a COVID project. I wrote the book and researched it largely during COVID, hmm. so I could spend a lot of time at the office and not much time anywhere else because yep. of COVID. And so I sat there and uh, uh, became a, an avid Trove user. And by gathering little snippets, just a tiny mentions sometime of people, or sometime a big spread of pe stuff about people. Mm. I uh, collected all that, uh, tabulated it so that I could find it, and then wove it together into stories. Uh, there's a man in the book called James Patterson, and because he was a councillor, uh, because he was president of the cricket club, uh, because he was uh, a warden at the church at Vasey, uh, he was into everything. So he's always in the paper, seldom with a big story, but mostly with just, he gets a mention, you know? Yeah. And so he's got one of the longest uh, stories in the book, and I think there's 150 references to him uh, that I wove together to make a story about an incredible citizen of Patterson and Vasey. Fantastic. Now, you've just held your official book launch yes. for this. What sort of response have you had from people? And are you expecting that it will bring um, other descendants and distant family members out of the woodworks? Has it? Yeah, well, before, I, uh, before the book launch, I had uh, advertised uh, the book on various uh, family history mm. and historic uh, history uh, websites and so forth. And uh, Rodney contacted me by email. Hello, I'm Rodney. Hello, Rodney. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd like to uh, uh, buy a copy of your book. Uh, and so 
I hand delivered my book to co- uh, to uh, Rodney and his wife Frances yeah. in a coffee shop. Yep. And he's my third cousin. Oh. And <laughs> that we had no idea, you know. But there have been several other third and second cousins who have contacted me, and we've had little chats on um, online at the book launch. One of the families that I least expected, really, because I don't know many of them, mm. the Puxties, yeah. half a dozen or so of those turned up at the book launch. Yeah, there's a bunch of Puxties in Newcastle. Yes, yeah. and I hadn't met any of them, but they turned up at the book launch. So I met them, and uh, that, that was really good. Now, you asked about responses. Mm. Uh, I'm interested in how people read a book. One friend has identified all the errors. Oh. <laughs> That's how he reads a book. Another friend, professional historian, by the way, mm-hmm. enjoyed the stories. Yep. And that's what I wanted him to say. Yep. <laughs> I love the stories. Another surprise is that some people go straight to the genealogical, genealogical details, yep. births, deaths, marriages, and don't mention the stories. But it's the stories that I most want people to read, and quite a few people have read the yeah. stories. Yeah. I know when I see an interesting book about Australian history or Sydney history in particular, where most of my family were from, I always flick straight to the back to see if any of the relevant names are mentioned. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That, that's true of this book too. I've had contacts from people. Uh, is my great auntie Annie in the book? Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> well... You might say no, but a lot of her rallies are, you know. Yeah. And uh, you'd learn a lot about a lot about her by learning about her relatives. Mm. That's an actual true story. Uh, a Puxty person, uh, Annie Puxty isn't in there, but all the others are. A lot of the others are, yes. All right. Let's. You've got some photographs to share. Yes. With us, Roland. So let's go through some of these, and and you can tell us a little bit about them. This is a colliery. That's no, it's not a colliery. It's not. No, it's uh, the Great Coba Copper Mine. Uh, the, uh, that would be about the turn of the century, about 1900. Uh, and the reason it's in there is that uh, I'm a descendant of the Longworth family, mm-hmm. and at one point the Longworth family owned the Great Coba Copper Mine. My book has a lo- lot of in- story about the Longworths. I'm not sure whether now's the place to tell you the long story, but um, briefly, the original Longworth came to Australia as an indentured miner to the AA Company. Mm-hmm. He was obliged to work for them on a pittance in Newcastle in a coal mine. He finished his indenture, and I think then he worked as a smelter at Waratah, but then he went to Rix's Creek near Singleton, where he opened his own coal mine. And at age 64, around 1880, I think it was, he was working with a pick in his own mine, hacking coal from the ceiling, uh, with 13 employees also in the mine. And while he was hacking coal, the mine roof collapsed on him Uh. and killed him and one other employee. Mm. Now, that was Thomas Longworth Sr. He had six or seven children and of those two brothers William and Thomas continued mining at Rix's Creek and nearby and they did very well. They set up coke ovens there so they could make coke from the coal. In the mid 1990s, 1890s I mean, they went to Cobar to manage the great Cobar copper mine. 
The reason being is that the mine was doing very poorly and looked as though it might have to close. So they went down there as managers and they made a roaring success of it. And uh, it's claimed that the reason that they made a roaring success of it is that they bought uh, new technology from America, um, furnaces uh, from America, uh, water-cooled furnaces, and they bought coke from Rix's Creek down to Cobar. Right. And that was a winner because all the trees around Cobar had been cut out, I think, for over 100 miles around. The trees had been destroyed to fire the smelter furnaces in mm. Cobar. So they bought coke. They didn't need timber. They shipped, took it there by rail. And that worked very well. And the price of copper rose. They became extremely wealthy. And then in 1906, they sold it for a vast amount of money. And in 1907, the price of copper fell and the people who bought the mine went through a very slack period. But uh, William and Thomas, um, after a stay in, uh, in Lithgow, where they'd already opened the smelter, mm. they went to live at uh, Potts Point and Warunga. Mm. And William went to live uh, eventually at uh, Glenroy, his house at uh, Port Stephens, at Karua. Yeah. And that's where he died. Now, I see you're looking at another picture. Yes. This is one of the Longworths. William Longworth is well known in Newcastle uh, for his uh, uh, generosity. He donated the what's now known as the Longworth Institute mm. to the Society of Patriots. And the Society of Patriots were a, a body that wanted to encourage people to love Australia, to love flora, fauna and Aboriginal people and the Australian story. So he gave that building to the city together with a collection of books and a collection of artworks. He didn't get to the opening because he was too sick and he died shortly after it was opened. Now, I see you're looking at a very interesting photograph. It's still one of our most loved buildings, isn't it? It is one of our most loved buildings. Mm. And in there is a fine, I think it's still in the building, is a fine portrait of William uh, Longworth. But you're looking at another portrait of William Longworth. And that portrait is, uh, well, they say you find skeletons in the cupboard. Mm. My skeleton in the cupboard is that in uh, when William was uh, 30 years of age, he went to jail for two years for perjury. He lied in court. Uh, about certain matters uh, that netted him 500 pounds, and he was found that what he, it was found that what he said in court was false, and so he was sentenced to two years jail. Two years jail, 500 pounds, a lot of coin in those days. Do you know what the court case was? The court case is recorded at great length in the uh, I think it's the single Nargis and the and the Mercury, hmm. great length. But I think we'd need a team of lawyers to work out. <laughs> I can't understand from reading it how he was to benefit from the lie he told. Right. I, I don't... Maybe I, somebody else was. Well, you need to have a team of lawyers work on it. Uh, but one more thing about that picture. If you just opened that, um, that mm. uh, jail picture again, yep. you'll see that, that on the top left of it there, I think it says uh, country of origin, England. Native place, England. Uh, native place, England. Uh, the year that he came to Australia... But then the next one says the ship hmm. that he came to Australia. Can you read that or is that print too small? Oh, Art of... Michia. Michia. He came on the ship called the Art of Michia. 
at least that's what the jailer heard. When the jailer wrote down the name of the ship, he wrote Art of Mysia. Oh, he, Artemisia. It came on the Artemisia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, Roland, moving along. Who's this fine rooster here with these two horses? Uh, that's my uh, grandfather, Harry Burns, uh, with two draft horses, or heavy horses anyway. Uh, we think probably on his dairy farm at Mount Thorley. I had the good fortune of having my grandfather live till I was 30 years of age, so oh. I, knew him, I knew him very well. You are lucky. Yes. Harry and Henrietta, his wife, were very good to me when I was young, and they lived in Terralba Road, Broadmeadow, and uh, at that t- by that time, well, they'd moved from Mount Thorley uh, in hard times. Mm. They'd moved to uh, Broadmeadow, and uh, Harry told me that he was the manager of Central Ice Works, which was just at the end of Terralba Road in Hedden Road. Okay, so my grandfather is the manager of the Ice Works. And on several occasions, I stayed overnight with him and he would give me uh, rissoles and uh, tomato gravy for breakfast with perhaps a couple of eggs chucked in and some toast. And then we'd go to the Ice Works where he would feed the draft horses. Now, they had quite a big number of draft horses because they carted ice right across Newcastle. Yeah. And he was in charge of these horses. And I would sit above the uh, feeding trays where he'd put the hay. And I just loved the smell and the warmth of the draft horses. And uh, I came to realise that my grandfather, in a sense, was the manager of the ice works because he was actually the caretaker. Yeah. And so he managed it in that sense. That yeah. was his little joke, you know. That he's the manager, yes, of course. Yeah. And there he is there uh, with his uh, wife, Henrietta, and uh, my mum on the left and her brothers, Alan and Stuart, with their 1924 Maxwell car. That is a fabulous photograph. That is. And it's probably on their property at Mount Thorley. I think most people now that now know that Mount Thorley is a vast hole in the ground, the yeah. dairy farm. James Puxty. That's the man I told you about who was a councillor, uh, cricketer, church warden, etc. at at Vasey. Mm-hmm. And that is a beautiful photograph. It shows him with a spiral walking stick. And he's in his uh, Sunday best, his suit with his uh, watch chain, uh, in his hat and glasses. It's a studio portrait. Uh, he's a fine-looking man. He's a, he, was, uh, he was an influencer in <laughs> Patterson in those days. Uh-huh. He uh, didn't have any uh, children, but he adopted a, a boy. And that boy's grandson now owns... James's property at right. Basie. His name is Neil Somerville. Yeah. And Neil was very, very helpful to me in this project. And Neil was, and his wife, Coletta, were so um, excited by it that they got this photograph restored because the photograph was in the cow shed and a cow had put its foot through it. Oh. It cost, I won't tell you how much, it cost a vast fortune to have it professionally restored and framed. They've done a really beautiful They've job They've done a beautiful that. job, yes. Okay. Roland Bannister, this one is uh, an early picture of Rix's Creek. Yes. With the coal cars. Gosh, look at it. What, what year is that? Uh, Any we, idea? No, we don't know what year, but it's probably, probably before 1900, and we don't know that it is a Longworth mine, but it would be like a Longworth mine. And um, Tell us I, the story, doesn't I it? I have met an old-timer from Singleton who said, Mr Longworth 
was Mr. Rex's Creek. Yeah. Um, and this photograph, of course, is the very beautiful Longworth yes. Institute. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. it is. It's a, it's a beautiful building and uh, many of us in Newcastle just wonder what its future will be. Luckily, one of our Menken's remaining Menken's buildings. It is. It's, mm. uh, it's a lot of people's favourite Menken's building. It's my second favourite. My favourite is the Presbyterian Church on the corner of Lehman and Auckland Street. Yeah. It's a much plainer building. This one, Copper Smelter at Waratah. Yes, I don't know a lot about that one, but that's where my uh, Longworth relative, Thomas, worked for a a time. Mm. Uh, I don't want to say too much about it because I don't know enough about the smelter or his time there. But hopefully if somebody listening does know something about the copper smelter at Waratah, they'll be able to get in touch and let you know. There was a copper smelter at Lambton and a copper smelter at um, Lambton, Waratah, and other places yeah. around Newcastle, yes. All right. This is a beautiful-looking property. <laughs> yes, that is a beautiful photograph. It's a two-storey uh, brick house with a balcony on the top floor and a family group sitting in front of the house dressed in their Sunday best. And on one side is... Uh, or both sides, there are men with, uh, with horses. But the family group... The lady on the extreme right, sitting down, is my great-great-great-grandmother, Ellen Puxty. I just love Ellen Puxty because of the stories I could tell about her. It's very hard to find stories about women, but Ellen was the pub licensee's wife. Elle Hannon, her husband, uh, was the licensee of three hotels, in succession hmm. in Patterson, and they're often referred to in the press as Mrs. Puxty's Hotel. Her st- the stories um, involving her are often about uh, court cases uh, because she would be called as a witness. Yep. Because if there's a blue in the pub and somebody punches somebody, it's what the barmaid saw, you know? <laughs> so Ellen would uh, be called as a witness. And in one of those uh, cases, uh, she says, I am Ellen Puxty the landlady of the Royal Oak at Patterson. The Royal Oak still stands, the building. Wow. Um, but, um, but the building in this particular Have photograph... Have you been over there for a beer? Uh, it's now a private residence. Is it? Yeah, so oh. no, I haven't. But okay. she did work at the Courthouse uh, Hotel when she finished when they finished their licence period. Roland, something very else interesting about this photograph is that this looks like a you know a typical, very nice, rather grand two-storey home of the time. But what's going on in here behind it? Ah, good question. I've never asked that. Uh, never asked about that. Uh, I can say that the building doesn't stand. It was. Um, Demolished in the 60s, I understand. But um, that, that pa- photograph is from the Patterson Historical Society. And next time I'm talking to somebody from there, I'll ask them about the uh, building that's sort of yeah, behind. Yeah, because it looks like there's, there's industry going on behind that building. Yes. Is the house connected? Is it just, yes. you know, one of those interesting perspective things in the photograph? Yes. But yes. Um, you're lucky to have such great photographs. Uh, this is a photograph of, oh, uh, look at of them. Uh, 20, uh, 20 or so men taken at uh, the BHP Steelworks. Uh, just as school fo- school uh, classes have their photograph taken each year, yeah. it was a practice there for the uh, workers to have their um, portrait taken uh, or their group taken now and then. Uh, I understand that the photograph was taken at the uh, beginning of uh, night shift. That would be 12 o'clock at night. I don't know that for sure. 
Uh, come to think of it, the lighting doesn't suggest that. But anyway, that's his uh, team. He, my father, was uh, a country boy, raised in the country north of um, Inverell, Ashford, Graman. His family suffered dreadfully during the Depression. There was no work. Dad didn't uh, go past the end of primary school. There was very little work. So they came to Newcastle in the 20s to Elizabeth Street, Tyres Hill. And he and some of his uh, siblings, his brothers, got jobs at the steelworks. I often think uh, my father was a country boy, mm. temporarily working at the steelworks till he could go back to the country. Yeah. But, of course, he worked at the steelworks Usually most of his life. Usually doesn't you know, happen. Sorry, do you know what year that photo was taken? I think I have worked that out. I'd say it's taken about 19... Uh, in the 40s. 40s. I, I'm not certain. It would be really wonderful to see if we can identify any of these other yes, men. Yes, it would. It would. It would. Let's set that as a challenge for okay. for our losties to see if we can find any any of these um, yes. other people. And this car. Yes, that car. That, it says... Um, you, pasteurised you, butter. Pasteurised butter. I told you that my uh, grandfather, Harry, was the manager caretaker yes. of the ice works. Uh, he lived nearby and he, uh, before he was at the ice works, he had uh, set up a butter and egg run. When he moved from Mount Thorley to Broadmeadow, he put his money into buying a truck mm. and uh, a house with a uh, brick shed where he could store the butter and eggs. And so he travelled around um, the district uh, selling butter and eggs. Inside the truck. I don't know what t- what brand of truck oh, it is. Oh, someone will know. But It'll be yeah, well, identified by now. Yeah, yeah. It's a great photo. Yeah. And uh, not that anybody would really want to know, but I could take them to the exact block of land where that's taken. Where is that? That's in Taralba Road. It's the present... It's next door to the present number six, I think it is. Right. I say present number six because the numbers of that street changed. A lot uh, of them did, didn't yes, they? Yes, and... Uh, Finest pasteurised butter. Is that what it says? Finest. Yes, finest. Yes, yes. I think it says finest anyway. Yes. Such a massive amount of work. And I can understand why you've said an incomplete chronicle because you, you have to draw a line somewhere, don't you? you do. Otherwise, how, how long is yeah, a piece of string and how far back do you want to go? Yes. Can you tell me about surprises, happy surprises or sad ones that you found in the course of your research? There aren't many stunning surprises. One surprise is that mum has six convicts in her family, but they were never mentioned. Mm. And But I had, over the years, worked out that there were these convicts. But so our families didn't talk about that. It no. Was... Uh, there is a wonderful photograph in the book of mum and her uh, grandparents and others in a beautiful, posed uh, family photograph. Uh, and it's the generation after the convict and I think that they're, they're in their Sunday best, they're posed, and that spells respectability. Yeah. And that's what they were doing. Uh, that was one little surprise. But the great surprise was to find that uh, Mum's great-uncle Bill, William Longworth, had spent time in jail. That was, <laughs> that was the big one. For perjury. For perjury, mm. yeah, because he was a much-admired man because of his generosity. Mm. Not only did he give the Longworth Institute to Newcastle, but he gave a children's ward at the Martha Hospital yeah. uh, and he gave uh, a wing to the Cobar uh, Hospital, the Longworth wing it was called. It's mm. not there anymore, but he donated that. Roland, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story and congratulations on the book. 
I so know you've said it's incomplete, but can you help yourself from continuing to do a little bit of digging? Uh, I will continue to do a little bit of digging, but I'm reluctant to engage on an all-consuming yeah. uh, uh, task like yeah. this book was. You yeah. know, I tell my wife I'm going to spend more time with the living than the dead <laughs> for a little while now. Yeah. Uh, no, I will keep digging because I like doing it. Right. Yeah. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Carol. For more information on Lost Newcastle or to get in touch with your stories, go to lostnewcastle.com.au and keep listening for more great Novacastrian stories.